this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. I've been saying that marriage mirrors the gospel. We should not see the gospel clearer anywhere than in marriage. Yet for a long time, the New Testament's guidance on how to operate our marriages has really been abused to keep men in power and to keep women down. But this is my attempt for us to understand clearly the heartbeat, the gospel heartbeat of what marriage is really all about. Real marriage can be difficult. Real marriages have their ups and they have their downs. But marriage, while it's a great mystery, we've been saying that marriage mirrors the gospel. Right? Marriage mirrors the gospel. That's, the, that's kind of the idea of this entire message series is that God is working something out in and through you. That's why I love that song we just sang, uh, that last little part there, Jeff. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's why we always preach the gospel here at the Orchard Church. We are always talking about the blood of Jesus. Your marriage is always pointing to the gospel, and we always preach the gospel. Because without the gospel, what do you got? Without the blood of Jesus, what do you got? The song would have to go like this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing Right? I mean, because you got to, it's, it's all about the blood of Jesus. It's all about the gospel, the fact that you and I were rebellious criminals against God, separated from him and under his judgment. We deserve to pay for our treason, and the payment for treason is death. So the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We're separated from him, yet he saw us and loved us. And God wrapped himself in flesh, became a man, and came here and lived on this earth for 33 years to tell us about the kingdom of God. And then he went to the cross where God took all of the things that I had done and blamed Jesus for him and punished Jesus in my place. He paid the debt that I owed. And he lives today. He died and he rose again, living today to bring me into a new life, to unite me uh, as one with the Father. That's what it's all about. And outside of that, I got nothing. I got nothing for you. That's what it is. Everything else that we're talking about, even this marriage series, is all just how that works out in your life, specifically in your marriage. So we stand by and we always preach the gospel. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. That's what it's all about. And our marriages mirror the gospel. And we've got this issue that we've been talking about. We've been looking at this passage in Ephesians 5. Let's look at it again real quick. As the scriptures say, Paul writes, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. That's what I'm talking about. And this part of the passage, he's just quoting Genesis. He's quoting Genesis right here. I mean, he's pointing back to the beginning, to God's original design for you and for me. God has united the man and the woman in one marriage. This is a great mystery. 
but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. God's drawing a picture. Your marriage is God's expression of himself. He's drawing a picture of the way Christ and the church are one. So when you look at your marriage, when your spouse looks at your marriage, when your kids when your coworkers, when your friends look at your marriage, they are intended by God to see how Christ and the church are one. And so we've been looking at this for the last several weeks. And we've got to be honest that this picture, in fact, this is the first blank if you're following along. It takes two to draw this picture. It takes two to draw this picture, right? It's a picture of Christ and the church. There are two components to this picture, that means it takes me and it takes you. And frankly, we've been kind of dancing around this issue a little bit for the last few weeks. We've been kind of dancing around it, not really talking about what your specific role in this picture is as a husband, as a wife. But Paul is really clear about what your role is, how you specifically draw this picture. He's very descriptive about your role, wives, about your role, husbands, in marriage. But we've kind of been dancing around it. I'll show you why. He says it in the very next sentence after the one we just read about how it's an illustration that Christ and the church are one. Here's what he says in Ephesians 5, Next sentence. However, let each one of you, he's talking to men here, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen, let's go home. I mean, that's the way this passage is usually treated, isn't it? I mean, you hear a guy up in the front of the room, he's in the spotlight, he's got a microphone, and he, he, he is really good at saying, you wives, you must submit to your husbands. Is this a misreading of this passage? I don't know. Frankly, I think it gets a little worse sounding. Because you don't only have to look at the passage that comes right after the illustration passage, but you have to look at the part that comes right before that also. There's a part before it, and there's a part after it. Let's look at the one before, Ephesians 5, 22. Here's what he says to wives. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ... So you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Let me just let that sit for a second. Because I know for some of us in the room, for some of us, we're used to this passage. We know this passage real well. And we hear this, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's what it says. I, I know. But for some of us, some of us have had this passage used effectively as a weapon to abuse us. Some of you women have had this passage used to keep you down and quiet and submissive. See, the way God says it. See, that's what God says right there. And I just want to take a minute and tell you that I'm, I'm sorry if you've been through that, I apologize. I think that good people have inadvertently used this passage out of insecurity in themselves 
and out of context, and they've, they've, they've informed your reading of this passage with a real shallow, out of context, insecure understanding, and they've used it to manipulate and to create this male abuse of authority that has no place in the body of Christ. They've used it to create a, a male abuse of authority that is nothing like Jesus at all. And so what I want to do today is I just want to acknowledge that in the room and just say I know some of you have gone through this and what I would like to do is I would like to take the next few minutes and I'd like for us to look at this passage the way I think Paul intended for us to look at this passage I'd like for us to break it down and understand what he's really saying. I really believe, I really believe that if you look at this passage the way Paul intends for you to look at this passage, it'll almost reverse your understanding of what he's saying here. So will you go with me on this little trip here real quick? Can I do that? You're looking at me very skeptically. I'm just going to say, you're looking at me like this. I don't know about that. I don't know. So let's just kind of look at this and let's see how it goes. If you're going to understand what Paul's saying here, you've got to, first of all, understand this really key, important thing. This, this truth is really important. I don't think we say this enough in church. And I want to be really clear with you about this. First of all, you've got to understand that the Bible is written for you. Can I get an amen? The Bible is written for you. Here's the problem. The Bible is not written to you. Hello? It's written for you, but it's not written to you. If you want to know who it's written to, let's just look at this one letter, Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, if you back up to the very, very first sentence in Ephesians, you'll see Paul writing. And he says, this is Paul, and I'm writing to the Christians in what town? Ephesus. He's writing to first century Roman citizens in the Middle East who have become Christians and live in an ancient Roman society. They have a culture and a pattern of thought that is very, very different from ours. In this day and age, when Paul is writing in the Roman Empire, women are little more than commodities. They are bought and sold. The way that you men would, uh, would acquire a, a wife in ancient Rome, if you were a well-to-do family, is you would buy one from another family. Average age of a man getting married in Rome in those days was mid-30s. Average age of a woman getting married, 17. So you got mid-30s buying wives who are, according to our culture, underage and that's what's going on. It's kind of creepy. It's a different culture. It's very, very different from today. Women, because of their status, they have no voice. They have no role in society. They have no vote. They just don't have any rights hardly at all. This is a very, very patriarchal society. It's controlled by men. Caesar is a man. Doesn't matter what Caesar it is, he's going to be a man. In fact, the title of Caesar, he is called the Son of God. Yeah, that's what they call him, the Son of God. And all of the ruling class of Rome, the top few percent, is all male, all male. 
You can't be a senator, you can't be a ruler unless you are male. And all of the society of Rome is divided up by these big family units of multiple families in one big, almost like a tribe. It's a family unit. And each of those family units are headed by a man, right? And then each individual family unit, nuclear family, is headed by a man. Women have little or no say in anything. It's by the words of the men that everybody lives or dies. It's in this oppressive, difficult culture that Paul is writing to these Christians. And he's telling them something that I think is not an oppressive, but rather a hope-bringing, life-bringing message. He's writing to them, and he's talking about how the gospel works out in their lives. He spends the first half of the letter writing about the gospel. Here's what the story is. And he goes through, you're dead in sin. You're under God's wrath just like everyone else. But God loved you and he sent his son. I mean, he goes through the entire bad news and the good news of the gospel. And then in the second half of the letter, he just kind of explains how it all works out in your job and in your neighborhood and with your friends and and then he gets to marriage. He talks about how the gospel works out in your marriage. When you finally get down to Ephesians 5, he's still writing to, you know, everybody in general. He's not talking specifically about marriage. In fact, at the beginning of Ephesians 5, this, where this passage is that we've been reading, at the beginning of the chapter, he's setting up an idea that he wants you to get. He's being very careful to put an umbrella over everything he's about to say. And I think we cannot understand what Paul is saying to husbands and wives unless we understand the concept that he's laying down here. So let's back up to the beginning of Ephesians 5, and let's look at what he's setting up. He says this to us. He says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with, say it. Okay, I'll do it one more time. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us a pleasing aroma to God time out who's Paul talking to here talking to the Ephesians specifically what Ephesians Christians male male Christians female Christians yeah, Paul's talking to everyone. Imitate God. Imitate God. And if there's one thing, can I, let me go back to that verse real quick. If there's one thing he wants us to imitate God on, it's this specific characteristic of God. What's the specific characteristic of God he wants us to imitate? Love. He wants us to live lives of love. Paul is setting up the idea of living a loving life. Okay, so as you're reading, if you were reading all the way through, you'd get to this part, you're going, okay, uh, what does it look like to love? And he talks through what it looks like to love. And then a little bit later on in the same passage, before he gets to marriage, he kind of closes out this section of setting up the umbrella with this sentence here, Ephesians 5, 21. He says, and further, so you love everybody, you love each other, and further, you take it one step farther, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right, time out. Who's he talking to here? 
So is he talking to wives? Yes. Is he talking to husbands? Yes. Is he talking to single people? Yes. Is he talking to teenagers? Yes. I'm sure your parents will circle that later on for when you're talking to your teenager. He's talking to everyone. Submit to one another. He's talking about this mutual submission to each other. Hey, Christians, if you're going to love each other, you've also got to submit to each other. If you're going to love each other, you've got to remember that next blank on your page, love and submit are two parts of the picture. It's two sides of the same coin. You can't really love without submitting, and you can't legitimately submit without love. So for Paul, love and submit go together. It's all one package. That's how he sets it up in his umbrella statement. But then we get into the parts that we like to take out of context. Let's look at it again. We already looked at it once. Let's look again. For wives... What this means, what it means to love and submit is it means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He, Jesus Christ, is the Savior of his body, the church. So let me just ask you the question. It's, it's 2021, and we're all woke Right? I mean, we know we're culturally sensitive. We, we know what's really going on in the world. We're enlightened and awakened. Uh, and so when you hear the word submit in 21st century America, does that have kind of a positive or a negative connotation to it? Negative. Submit, that means negative. Why? Why is it negative? What does it mean? It means you're weak, powerless. You what? You're, you're being controlled. You have no control of your own. You're being controlled. Dominated, yeah. Yeah, submission sounds really bad. But don't forget, culture and language, they change, all right? They evolve because they're both alive and they're moving. And so for us, submit sounds really negative, but not so for Paul, Paul doesn't hear the same thing that we hear in our heads when he's talking about submit. For Paul, when he's talking about this, the Greek word here just means to put yourself under someone else. Okay? For us, it's controlling, domineering. You're losing your dignity. You're losing your freedom. You're, you're losing your identity if you're submitting to someone else. But for Paul, when he says submit, he's saying this. Next mic on your page. Submit means you first. You first. Your needs, more important than my needs. Your needs get taken care of before my needs get taken care of. Paul's saying to wives, hey, you, if you're going to be a loving, Christ-like wife, then you will make sure that your spouse's needs get taken care of before your own. This is an amazing link to Jesus himself, isn't it? Because who is the chief submitter in the Bible? Jesus. Who submitted from higher to lower than Jesus? Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he says this in Philippians 2. He says, don't be selfish. 
don't try to impress others. In other words, your needs, mm, not your needs. Instead, he says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Who's he talking to here? Everybody. So he says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others as well. And then he makes this statement. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Be like Jesus. He was God. Be like Jesus. He was God. Everybody take your finger right now and point to God. Let me see it. Point to God. Point to God. He was God. Come on, let me see. Point. How, how high is God? I mean, honestly, your finger's not high enough, is it? Come on, keep pointing. Don't stop pointing. I got to stand up here. You can hold a finger up. All right, so if you're going to point to God, is your finger high enough? What, should, should you stand up? Stand, everybody stand up and point to God. Come on. Oh, listen to your old people groaning. Okay, is your finger high enough? Okay, if you're brave, stand up on a chair. No, don't really, don't really. You can if you want. Yeah, is your finger high enough? Now, see, now Sherry could stand up on a chair. Her finger still wouldn't be as high as mine right beside her. I mean, God, how high is Jesus? I mean, he's the highest. He's up there, right? Now, keep your finger there for just a second. So he was God. Keep your finger pointing at God. So though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't see it as something to hold on to. So here's what he did. Look at this. Instead, keep your fingers up. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave. Where's the slave? Point to the slave. Right? Jesus, come on, keep pointing. He goes from here, and he goes where? Okay, now keep pointing at the slave. Keep point, just keep pointing at the slave. All right, so the slave is always at the bottom, right? The slave is always beneath the others. So Jesus goes from the top to the slave. It doesn't end there yet. So he gave up his divine privileges, took a humble position of a slave, was born as a human being, and when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So he goes from... Come on, point to him. He goes from here to slave to slave criminal. How do you even point to that? Come on, show me. Come on, show me. Your finger's not low enough. Who's the chief submitter in the Bible? He goes from unreachable to unreachable. You may be seated, the three of you who are still doing good. <laughs> this is who he is. And you wives say, well, I can't submit to him. Who are you? Who are you following? Wives, submit as Christ Submitted. Jesus himself said there's no greater love. He's talking about love and submitting. He says there's no greater love than someone lay down his life for his friends. That's who Jesus is, and that's who he calls us to be. Wives, you think that sucks? You've got it easy. Because next, Paul deals with husbands. 
This is the passage right here. We're going to look at this right now. This is the passage that so many in our society have used and abused to fake elevate ourselves. Fake elevate. Listen to that. (laughs) Ephesians 5.25. Wives, you submit. Husbands, this means you love your wives. Love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Just keep this right here for just a few minutes. Love your wives. Now, I just want to be clear. Remember, language and culture, they change, they evolve. So, in 21st century American culture, what is love? What is love? Come on, what is, what is, I stopped myself. I stopped myself. No, I stopped. I stopped. Oh my gosh, I need to pray right now. Sorry. There's nothing worse than an old white guy trying to break something. All right. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to break a hip just doing that. So what is love? In our culture today, what is love? It's, it's an emotion, right? It's a warm fuzzy. Love is a feeling. In our culture... Love is not really well defined, right? How many words for love do we have in English? One, love. That's our word for it. Now, Paul, he, you know, he understood Greek culture. In Greek culture, they had five words for love. So they could define it down. This type of love is different from that type of love. You know, I love my wife. And I love Oreo cookies. Are those the same love? No, but in our culture, we just love, we love, you know, our family, and we love motorcycles, you know. Um, We love our spouse, and we love steak. Steak. Okay, thank you. We love steak. So we love everything, right? I mean, it's just ill-defined, it's fuzzy, and really, primarily, it's just, it's about how we feel. That's why in our culture, <coughs> unlike in their culture, you can fall in love or you can fall out of love, right? Because it's an emotion. And how do you know? How do you know when you fall in love? You, you know because you see it in the movies all the time, right? The first third of the movie, he and she, they hate each other, right? They're, bop, they're bumping heads. They, they don't get along. They don't like each other. They wish the other one was dead. Till about a third of the way through the movie... They get put in a really weird, strenuous situation. It's awkward. And somehow they lean in and accidentally kiss each other. Accidentally kiss. By the way, has anybody ever been in a situation where you accidentally have to kiss someone? I mean, I can't even, I don't even understand that. But that's what happens, you know. They accidentally kiss. And then you know what happens is they pull away. Oh. You can feel the electricity coming through the movie screen, right? I mean, the sparks are flying. It's like, oh, there's love. There's something there. There's love there. And they fall in love. They accidentally stumble into love. Then they spend the other two-thirds of the movie trying to admit it to themselves. And they have happily ever after at the end, right? Isn't that the way it works? Hallmark. Hallmark. That's every Hallmark movie. That's right. But that's not the way it is for Paul. That may be the way it is for Shakespeare a little bit, who came along much, much, much later 
and romanticize the idea of love. But for Paul, love isn't nearly so much an emotion as it is an action. For Paul, next blank, love is action. For Paul, love is action. It's something, it's something that you do. It's not nearly something so much that you feel. It's what you demonstrate. Love is action for Paul. In other words, for Paul, love is you choosing to act in someone else's best interest. Love is someone saying, I will deny my own interests and I will act for the well-being of someone else. That's what love looks like for Paul. Does that make sense? It's something that you do much more than it is something than you feel. And so he says this. He says, husbands, back to Ephesians 5, 25. Sorry, I got you off there. Here we go. He says, husbands, love your wives, and wives will submit so you'll have warm dinner every night. Right? Because you, men, are the king of the castle. You're the head of the household. Right? Your word is gold. If there's ever a dispute, you've got final say. Is that what Paul's saying here? Does he ever say any of that? Okay, I want, you to, I want you to pay real close attention here, women and men, because Paul only draws one line. He connects two dots, the dot of the husband, with one line to one other dot. There's only one example that Paul gives here as an illustration of this principle that husbands love your wives because you're the head of the family, here's the, here's the example. Husbands, love your wives. Right here it is. You see this line? It's really clear. It's right here. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. This is very different from what our culture communicates. If it's true that love for Paul, love in the New Testament is much more about doing than feeling, then I think that there is no better example than Jesus. Do you think that night in the garden, as he's praying alone, that he felt like going to the cross for you? Do you think he was like, oh, I just love him so much, I just can't wait to get those nails right through my hands. I can't wait for them to beat me mercilessly. I just love getting thorns stuck into my head. Do you think that's what he was saying? Husbands, do something. Husbands, do something here. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave up his life. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't say, I'm king of the castle. I work all day. I come home tired. You got to have dinner ready. Come on, grow up. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. His love is active. It's self-sacrificing. It's purely selfless. And it's sanctifying. He loves her in order to Make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. The objective of Christ's love 
is to submit and to lift us up. You, you hear me? He has a reason here. It's not about how he feels. Holy cow, it's not about how he feels. It's about who he sees us becoming and him doing whatever he's got to do to lift us up. Come on, that's real love. Who are we? Who are we, men, to come home and say, I'm tired, where's dinner? Who are we? We're not like Jesus because he humbled himself and he served us to make us holy and clean. Jesus himself in John 13 says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. As I have loved you, love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In other words, as I've loved you, as you have received love from me, self-sacrificial love in your best interest, that's how you are to love those around you and it especially begins in your home. Do you see here that Paul is not drawing a picture of male abuse of authority? The picture that Paul is drawing is this dance between a husband and wife where the husband is seeking to come beneath his wife and lift her up and the wife seeking to come beneath her husband and lift him up. And it's this always-on dance where each other is doing whatever they can to humble themselves and to serve each other. Love and submission are two sides of the same coin. Can I get an amen? amen. This is the dance that draws the picture of Christ and the church. Because he's the head of the church, serving as a slave criminal. So I want to be clear, this passage challenges male abuse of authority. It does not condone male abuse of authority. Can I get an amen? amen. So how does that all work out? I'm out of time. How does that all work out? Um, I discovered a resource years ago that has been priceless for me to work that out in my life. Um, it's been great, and I want to pass it along to you because it's just been helpful to me. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote this really little book. I don't know, 25 years ago now, probably. It's called The Five Love Languages. And this book really revolutionized our relationship because I'm stupid. I'm just going to admit it. Praise the Lord, I'm stupid. And I thought I was being very loving and, and, and trying to express love to my wife. And, and what I discovered in this book was that everybody needs love, but everybody's got their own love language. And what I found out was my wife's love language was not the same language I was trying to communicate love in. I was trying to love her in a language that she doesn't even speak. So this helped me to understand my wife better and to understand how she could possibly receive love. It's a great resource. Am I right, Samantha? It's a great resource. She reminded me of it the other day, and I just really wanted to recommend it to you. It's available on Amazon. It's like six or seven bucks. I'm just going to be honest. I blew it. I bought a bunch of copies this morning, uh, four this morning, uh, and uh, we were selling them at cost out there uh, to the first service, and I figured I had enough for both, and they pretty much all got taken in the early service. So I've got three of these left. And whoever the first three are to come get me after the service can have them. I'll just give them to you, okay? Because it's that good of a resource. 
I'm telling you, it's great. The five love languages are words of affirmation, physical touch, receiving gifts, quality time, and acts of service. And I just learned how to communicate love to my wife. She's learned how to communicate love to me. I got a really big story I'm going to tell real quick about that, and then I'm going to end it. I got to give my wife props because she's better at this than I am. It was a few years ago, the stress had all piled up on me, and I was about at the end of my rope, and I didn't know what I was going to do next. I mean, I was just kind of, I was always really, really stressed out and just needed a break, but I was busy all the time, busy, busy, and so my wife recognized this thing I was going through, and she's like, look, let's take a break, let's get away, and she suggested, she says, why don't we, we haven't been to Washington, D.C. in years, why don't we go to Washington, D.C., and we'll go spend some time at the Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And I heard that, I'm like, dude, that sounds great, because I'm kind of a nerd for the space program. Okay, I follow all that stuff, I watch it. I will live stream the test launches of Elon Musk's Starship as he's trying to make that thing fly and land. And y'all probably don't even know what that is, except for you, Aaron. So, I mean, I'm just intrigued by this, love it. I'm a real nerd for it. And they had just gotten the space shuttle Endeavor all preserved and into the Smithsonian. I couldn't wait. I wanted to go see the for real space shuttle. So I was like, let's go, let's go. So we went up to D.C. and we spent a few days. And I just got to nerd out about the space program and history and all that stuff. I just love, love all that stuff. And I'm stupid. Did I tell you I'm stupid? It wasn't until about halfway through this trip it dawned on me that... My wife doesn't love the space program, and she doesn't love history. If she could be anywhere for a vacation, probably the last city on her list would be Washington, D.C. She'd rather be at the beach in Florida any day of the week. Anybody give an amen on that one? Yeah. That's her dream vacation, not Washington, D.C. That's a chore. That's a difficulty. That's boring for her. But she saw what I needed, and she suggested we take a trip to go do the thing she wanted to do the least so that I could have what I needed in that moment. And I didn't figure that out until halfway through the trip. And boy, did it communicate love to me. You know, boy, did that show me how much she was willing to sacrifice for me. Let me tell you something. Uh, you probably won't uh, take a trip as a result of the five love languages. Uh, but hey guys, if you're like me and you're a little stupid, not only will this explain what the love languages are, but it will tell you guys, okay, so if your spouse is like this, then do this and do this, okay? So it'll be very helpful to you and I highly recommend it. Come see me after. If you're using the digital notes this morning, there's a link right there straight to that book on Amazon and you can get it for yourself with one tap. Well, two taps. Go to it and then buy now. And uh, you can get the digital version to come right on your device or the paperback. There's even a leather-bound ver version for a little bit more money. I highly recommend this because this dance, last blank, this dance will change your marriage. Mm -hmm.